Malachi chapter 4 tonight. Take your Bibles and turn there. Have you stand in a moment. I think uh, perhaps we'll be concluding our study, the Minor Prophets tonight. I may reserve the right to come back and, and kind of do a summary of the 12, um, just in a big picture overview. But technically, as far as, you know, just working through these texts, um, I think tonight we'll conclude the study. I have personally been thoroughly challenged by the study. I have found such great application for us as a church and as an individual in the text. I, I, I thought it might be relevant to our times and really has just been really astonished how relevant this, these studies have been. And of course Malachi as well. And so really Malachi now is sort of summarizing um, and probably intentionally under inspiration of God really the theme or the intent of the Minor Prophets. Um, remember he's speaking to the post-exile community. And these people came back from Babylon and they had a form of godliness but were really denying the power of. They didn't have a heart for God as much as they were trying to form, follow a kind of a religion. But unfortunately that very attempt at religion was what was actually keeping them from God because they were forfeiting the relationship. Um, you know, you, you can have a marriage where people keep the rules, but a marriage is supposed to be infused with love and protected and girded about with love. And that's what was missing between these people and the Lord and prophet after prophet has tried to really communicate this, this same theme is that it's about the covenant. It's about the relationship. It's about the way two partners act in the relationship and they both have love and honor and respect for one another, but you are forfeiting that for something lesser. So we're going to begin our reading in verse number one of the fourth chapter of the book of Malachi. And uh, the prophet says, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as in heaven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. The idea is utter destruction. And of course, this coincides really well with our recent study in the book of Revelation. But now there's a contrast to that day of the Lord that consumes the wicked, but unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. In other words, for some the day of the Lord will be judgment, but for others it will really bring in or initiate a new day. And so the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. It's a happy day, a prosperous day is the idea. And ye shall tread down the wicked, so it's a day of vindication, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. And this is really the crux of the text. This is the pivot point, the hinge. I'll put in the word so, or therefore, it's implied. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. And behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord that he spoke about in verse number one. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest, for those who don't make this repentance, make things right, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Our Heavenly Father, I pray the next few moments, Lord, as we consider this ancient text that has modern day relevance, that Lord, you'd help us to understand, Lord, to discern or the nature of our relationship with you. Lord, it's, it's important, it's right, it's good that we're here tonight, but it needs to be um, 
more than just something that we do. Uh, Lord, uh, just a role that we feel, a, a routine that is part of habit. Lord, it needs to be, Lord, enfleshed with relationship and intent to worship and to know You. And so, Lord, help us with that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much uh, for standing. In the New Testament, Jesus used a teaching device to uh, convey truths that may have been hard to explain, um, but that He wanted the people to understand. And so, He used this device called a parable. And of course, you know, a parable is a story that's told alongside a truth, so that in the story you can see the truth. Para, uh, you know, means parallel, like these steps would be. You know, there's a story told that highlights the truth because of its proximity to the truth. One of those stories that Jesus told was about uh, a sower who went forth to sow, and he sowed good seed, and that's all, all the kind of seed he had was good seed. But unfortunately, that seed fell on four different types of soils. And the, the, the idea of the story was, is that though the seed itself was omnipotent, all-powerful, in other words, it had the potential in it to bring a great crop, you know, tenfold, a hundredfold, or a thousandfold, the only limiting variable for the seed was the condition of the soil that it found. Does that make sense? And all of us can still relate to that. We don't live in an agricultural society, but we, we get that. If you cast a seed out here on the sidewalk and versus cast a seed on the, the grass right next to it, you know, the yield is going to be totally different. And then if you actually plow up the ground next to that and, you know, you were to till it and, and turn it under, then that crop would even be greater. And, and the idea there is, you know, that what something can produce or what something does produce is dependent upon the reactants, the reagents of which it acts upon. And, and so, in this case, the seed. Well, in the story, of course, God is the sower, the seed is the Word of God, and the soil would be the condition of the heart that the seed falls on, the ears and the heart. And that's what the story is about. Well, Malachi, along really with the other 12 prophets, have been preaching and proclaiming that same kind of message is that um, God's Word has come to all of you, but the truth is you've not necessarily embraced it. You've not fleshed it out. You, you, you've not had a heart that's receptive, uh, been receptive to the truth. In this case, the prophet Malachi is telling Israel that, you know, it's not the seed that is coming, but the day of the Lord is coming. There is this great day that all the minor prophets have been talking about. And there's just been these lesser day of the Lord, but they all know that this ultimate day of the Lord is coming. And the ultimate day of the Lord is this day of wrath and vengeance where God exercises all His righteousness against unwickedness. But they also understood it to be more than that, that the day of the Lord is also a day when the millennial reign would be ushered in and the, and the Messiah would come and, and, and rule Israel and lead them to you know, unparalleled heights of success and prosperity. And unfortunately, the Jews were more focused on that part and then on the reason for which the judgment would come. They believed that they would have no part in that judgment. And, and really what they were holding to was not any righteousness in their heart, but the fact that they were the recipients of the original law, that they were the seed of Abraham, if you will. They, they thought to some kind of, you know, heritage that they would receive an exemption from that day of the Lord. But Malachi says, so a day of judgment is coming upon you. And uh, yes, it will usher in the millennial kingdom, but it will be a day of judgment. And it will be a day of fierce wrath. And it will be a day of consuming fire. 
But something that Malachi is stressing to communicate, again, as really all the prophets have, is that the impact of that day will be different depending upon um, how that wrath falls on you. In other words, if the wrath comes upon, now the earth is going to experience, you know, great destruction, but what that day of wrath means for you versus you is entirely dependent upon your relationship with God. Because if you're in relationship with God, then when that day comes in, then you will spring forth like a calf and a new day will be ushered in and you'll see that day as just a segue to a great day, a better day. But if you are not in right relationship with God and, and you, you are found among the wicked, the chaff here that's being burned up, then there will be no future day for you. There'll be only judgment and not just judgment, final, complete, uh, you know, devastating judgment. There, there will be no more repentance. There'll, there'll be no return. Um, it'll it'll be not just annihilation, but an eternity of judgment. And so if the day falls on those who are righteous, by that I mean in right relationship with God, it's going to be this this day described for us in verse number two. But if you don't know the Lord, it's going to be that which you find in verse number one. Here was the problem. In Malachi's day, as it really was, um, not just in the post-exile community, but really for the vast majority of Israel's history, God's people failed to see themselves correctly. All they could see was that they were, you know, the, the, the seed of Abraham. They were the offspring of Abraham. That they, they had been the uh, blessed recipients of the law there in Horeb from Moses. And, and they, they just thought that was enough. And they practiced a form of the law and righteousness, but never really uh, from the heart. The people were, they had a false and misinformed opinion of the condition of their heart. It'd be safe to say they did not see themselves as God saw them. They were deceived. Again, they believed because they were following and observing some of the technicalities of the law that they were okay. They were rule keepers, which we really see highlighted in Jesus' day with the Pharisees, where they had codified the law, you know, and all these things, and they had made it technical, and they had made it, you know, um, you know so extensive but they, they, they didn't live it out. They, they failed to really ever understand the intent of the law, which could have been summarized, you know, all these commandments, if they would understand that the root was this, love God and love people. Well, then they would have been able to obey the law in a much greater way, but they, they never really got that. Um, Isaiah, you know, really made this truth known to him. And Amos said this in chapter 5, verse 21, God speaking, he says, I hate Strong language. I despise your feast day, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. In, in the Old Testament, uh, idea of thinking a smell was a way of receiving worship. I, I'm not going to receive your worship. I hate it, God says. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I, I will not accept them. Take away from me the noise of thy songs. You know, God forbid he ever says that to Eastland Baptist Church. For I will not hear the melody. But let judgment run down as waters. Now, who's he speaking to? Well, you know, the connection is he's speaking to people going to church. He's speaking to people filling the temple. He's speaking to people who think they are righteous, but God says, you're not righteous. I despise this ritual that you're going through. Judgment needs to rain down upon you. See, they, they didn't get it. And, and, and let me say it this way. Here's what they weren't getting they were giving offerings, but they weren't giving offerings that cost them anything. 
You go back to the early chapters of Malachi, and God says, you know, where's my honor? Like, yeah, you bring me these, these calves, but they're the lame calves, they're the blind calves. These are the calves that you would discard anyway. And you think that you're fulfilling my law by bringing me the calf, but the intent here was that you'd bring me your best. You'd bring me the first. That it'd be something that was a sacrifice. It'd be something out of the heart of David. I, I won't give anything to the Lord that cost me nothing. Yeah, you're, you're, you're bringing some dollars, but they, they don't really mean anything to you. It's not your best, and that's what I want. Um, they were going to temple, but never mind that their heart was far from God while in the temple. Right? Like, I'm in church, but I'm on my phone. I'm in church, but I'm thinking about the basketball game or baseball game or football game, whatever season it happens to be. You know, or dinner when it gets close to 12. <laughs> I mean, we're human, but you, you get the idea. We're here. But what difference is it making? They, they didn't make that connection. They were honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. As a matter of fact, so far, they actually were also uh, giving some worship to Baal, just to hedge their beds. And this is something we can relate to. They, they were abstaining from a lot of evil, but they were forfeiting doing any good. They weren't making a difference. You know, they, they, they tried to keep themselves clean, but they just, it was an empty vessel, a whitewashed sepulcher, as Jesus would have said. You're clean on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You know, there, there's just nothing there that I can really commend. And so Malachi uses this platform of this book and his preaching in that day from inspiration of God to engage these people who are blinded by these realities in a hypothetical disputation, this argument between God and them to clarify uh, you know, the reality of their condition. And, you know, so these people, it's just kind of a back and forth, you know, oh, you don't love us. Well, I do love you and here's why. And, you're, and we are serving you. No, you're not serving me and here, here's why. And Malachi is trying desperately through this forum to help these people understand their true condition so that when the day of the Lord would come for them nationally or in their death individually, they would in fact be ready. That they could be receptive of blessings and not the curse. It was all intent to help them see the, the phoniness and the emptiness of their religion. So he's trying to draw their attention to the fact that their religion was, in fact, deficient, anemic, empty, and vain. The same kind of you know, religion that Jesus, you know, refuted in his day when he said, you call me Lord, Lord, but you're really not doing the things that I'm asking, not, not with your heart. You see, these themes just run through the Bible we understand in the book of Hebrews that genuine, real faith, well, it requires, um, it, it requires evidence, to use the biblical word. It requires substance. In other words, to hold the truth is always insufficient. To hold the truth in here is always insufficient. To live the truth out here is what is required. So when I say faith, you know, it's not just a word with a definition. It's a lifestyle that we live. And I understand that evidence is imperfect, and, and, and that's why God judges the motives and the intents of the heart, because He would understand what we, we, we might not. But that is what God is looking for. He's looking for substance in our faith, in the reality of our faith. Um, it's the same thing that we, would, we, we intuitively understand in a relationship. I can say to my wife, I love her, but then she is able to discern if I mean it. That's simple, Right. And so the Jews were saying things, but they weren't living things in the relationship so that God could appreciate it the way He intended to. 
In other words, genuine faith is evidenced not just by knowledge, but a life of enfleshing that truth. James 1.27, he says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, is to visit the, the fathers and the widow. Now, now that's not, it's, it, it's, a, it's a bit arbitrary, but the, the point is the same that's been all through the Old Testament. There are people out there in the world who need your help, and there's a good you're not, you're not doing, you're forfeiting. All you're doing is polishing your sepulcher. But I want you to go help people. And that's pure religion, is what he's saying. It's to help people, he says, in their affliction. And, by the way, to keep himself unspotted from the world. The post-exile Jewish community was failing this description really at every point. This is something that all the authors, all the 12 minor prophets, continually tried to point out you know, to their audience. Is that, you know, um, you want the day of the Lord to come? And that's great. But these minor prophets look at it and say, but you're not ready for it. You think it's going to be a great day of blessing, and it will be for some, but not like you think. Because, now listen, the wrath of God on the day of His coming isn't going to just fall on people who are non-Jews. It's going to fall to everyone who's wicked of heart. And He was speaking to them. And blessings are going to come, not just to what you think is the seed of Abraham, but everyone who is pure of heart. And even in Jesus' day, they still could not grasp these truths. And so, a blessing in a new day will not come just to the godly of Israel, but to all those who love the Lord. And so, it's about the heart. It's about the character of your faith. It's about being most of all in right standing with God. You know, um, I didn't really do... Uh, exact work with these last verses of chapter 3 because they were redundant on a previous idea. But he's saying this, you know, I'm going to come back and, 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 and some of you are going to be my jewels. Verse 17. You know, those who love me, they're going to make it my jewels and I will spare them. Whoever they are is the idea in verse 17 of chapter 3. As a man spareth his own son that serveth him. You know, those who love me I will spare. And so, in chapter 4 begins this reminder, one more time, you want to stay the Lord to come, it's going to come, but you need to be ready. And what's going to happen all day to you individually will be wholly dependent upon the condition of your heart. And so, verse 1, very quickly, the day of the Lord is going to come like a burning oven. And not just any old oven, but it is going to be a consuming fire. And, and he uses this metaphor, it's going to be like, we get this, if you, Oklahoma's been very dry. And of course, if you light a fire on most things, it's just going to go up like tinder because it's been so dry. That's the idea. When God comes, that's the way wickedness is going to be dealt with. Utterly, root and branch, the text says. Completely. No second chance. No, 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 no more opportunity to turn. You know, no, no roots and uh, you know, branches that can still bloom. It's going to be gone. That's going to be the level of my wrath when it comes. It'll be a consuming fire and it'll be the end of wickedness. But in verse 2, he said that day will come, and then when it's completed, it's going to usher in a new beginning, a new day. And he used this metaphor of the sun rising, which, you know, we all understand would be descriptive of, of something wonderful happening, a, a new dawning. Of course, that dawning would be the millennial kingdom. And he, he, he used some metaphors that, you know, that are appropriate to that time, healing in his wings, you know, as a bird that can fly and go forth as calves in the stalls. Have you ever been, you know, around little calves? You let them loose. You know, they just, they go out and they, 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 they play and they dance. It's, it's a lot of fun to watch. It's a happy day is the idea. It's the millennial kingdom is what he's describing for all those who survived the storm because of the condition of their heart. And then he describes in chapter 3, you know, all things are going to happen on that day. You know, depending on the quality of your heart. And so, now he says there's going to be a reversal. Now, for centuries, really... You know, um, 
Israel has been persecuted. They have been enslaved. Uh, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, they, they've, they've rarely been kind of blessed in the days of, you know, David, uh, Hezekiah, you know, there, there were some little uprisings of blessing. But for the most part, you, you, have, been, you have been put down. But the day is going to come in verse 3 where it's going to be completely reversed. And it says, and you shall tread down the wicked. The wicked have tread on you for centuries. But man, when that day comes, when the consuming fire comes and the new day dawns, and all of a sudden you're going to be on top. And you're going to rule with the Messiah. And, 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 and it's description. All this wickedness has been set on fire in his ashes, and you're going to be walking on top of it, watching a new day come. It's a very graphic picture of what God is going to do. And so, again, the theme is what that day brings is entirely dependent upon your relationship with me. And uh, he says, the idea is you're, you're not ready like you think you are. We were review chapter 1. You're supposed to love me like a child loves his father, but you haven't. You're supposed to honor me. And these words are really descriptive of God because they're involved in these technicalities of law, but God's saying, I want you to love me. I want you, in chapter 2, to honor me. I mean, he, he uses these different concepts than they're used to hearing. Verse 3, chapter 3, I want you to serve me. I want you to give me your best. And then we're going to see in a moment, and before, I want your life to be guided. I want the decisions of life that you make to be informed by the law, by the filter of the Word of God. That's what I want. Or I can say this way, I want the decisions that you make as an individual. I can say this, you know, regarding my family or Terry, I can say it this way, there's all these rules and laws I can keep. Or I can say this, the way I live with her is going to be informed by the love I have for her, the respect I have for her, the honor I have for her. That's what's going to guide me. Way beyond any individual, you know, jot and tittle of some law, those motives of love, honor, uh, you know, respect are going to guide my relationship with her and with you all. So the idea here is, remember, it's not just cognitive, but it's practice that should guide our choices. It should be, the law should change and define our character. And so he says here, remember verse 4, it's a critical part of this text. It's really, it's really the summation of Everything that Malachi has said, and really, if you go back, everything that, the, that all 12 of the minor prophets have said, he said, remember. Remember the law of Moses that you received on Horeb. Now, what's specifically critical about that? Well, he's not going back to these specific, you know, like the Decalogue or whatever else. He's going back to the covenant. And this is a word I have used over and over and over. Remember the covenant. Let me say it this way. Remember the relationship. Remember um, the marriage vows we entered into. Go back and remember that day when you pledged your love and loyalty to me and I pledged my love and loyalty to you, when we entered into a reciprocal relationship of how we would treat one another. You go back, you remember that. Specifically, the covenant. That commitment and relationship that you and I entered into, remember that. He says, because that relationship, that element, the way you view that relationship will be the deterministic element of how you navigate the day of the Lord. So in verse 5, he goes on to say, it's coming, so behold. And behold is that word that is to capture attention. And so he's looking at him and he's saying, behold, the day's coming. You need to be ready. And then here's just like the grace and mercy of God. It's amazing. He says, behold, 
he says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Okay. So that seems arbitrary, but it's not. Elijah uh, lived in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. He was almost singular in his love and devotion for God and his calling the nation back to repentance. Um, Elijah stood for truth and he understood this covenant relationship. He understood what Jeremiah said and Isaiah said and, and what Moses said. And so Elijah was standing as this representative of the law of God and the covenant of God and saying, we're not going to go down this road and follow Ahab and Jezebel. We're not going to do these things. Elijah was the prophet who was to call them back to repentance. Right? And so God's saying this, this day is coming. A, a really bad day is coming. But I'm going to send you a guy who loves me and he's going to instruct you on how to, how to love me too. Is the idea. So before judgment is going to come, if you will, even though it's a hard message, mercy. Before you go into, a, you know, uh, into my wrath and mercy, I, I'm going to give you another chance. Now he's talking nationally to them. But, but the message, you know, should be, you know, God, the day of the Lord's coming, maybe the future, but we're all going to die. Uh, well, I hope not. It'd be great to be, you know, go to rapture. But the idea is, you know, that day of judgment's coming, and, and, and God is gracious. He's, you know, He's rich in mercy. He doesn't want anyone to miss out on salvation. So I'm going to give you this man who's going to call you back to national repentance. But the day of the Lord won't come until, you know, one like is the idea that Elijah comes. And, and again, Elijah was this great man. He reminds God's people of their covenant responsibilities, again, like Moses and Jeremiah before him. And this is fascinating because Scripture records for us that Elijah never died. He's caught up in a whirlwind. The Jews always had this notion and belief, and rightly so, that Elijah would return one day. Well, we know he's going to. At least we, I say that. I'm pretty sure he's going to because Elijah, along with Moses, um, was seen by Jesus, um, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? So those guys are still out there. <laughs> And then, of course, the book of Revelation tells us that two witnesses are coming, and the, the description is super, super close to Elijah and Moses. And so, kind of a dual prophecy, um, someone in the spirit of Elijah is going to come, and we know that person from, I think, Matthew verse, chapter 1, somewhere in verse 7 or 17, I forget that. It's got a 7 attached to it. Um, that the angel told Zechariah that his son, who was going to be John the Baptist, would come in the spirit of? Elijah. And so, you know, before, you know, before Jesus would come, one in the spirit of Elijah would come and say, this is the way, walk you in it. And then before the great day of judgment again, most likely Elijah himself will come before that great day. And so, the Lord's just keeping His promises. And the whole point is this, He's giving people a chance to be ready for the judgment. That's what He's saying. This day is coming, be ready. I'm going to do my part to make sure that you are. I'm going to communicate through my prophets. And what will this guy do? He's going to get you in the right relationship. And he starts with the family and the home. See, again, this can seem arbitrary, but it, historically it wasn't. And this is, this is uh, horrible. But in the days of Elijah, fathers were sacrificing their sons to Baal. There was even, forgive me, cannibalism 
That's how far the people have gone. So in context, what's happening in Elijah's day? The family was destroyed. The family was broken. And the family is the root of all relationships. And so God's saying, you know, I'm going to send someone who's going to come and help you get right in your homes. And then, of course, and then with humanity. Why? You can't be right with God if you are not right with people. And Jesus makes this explicitly clear. And so a guy's going to come and instruct you in the law, and you're going to realize how important relationships are and dynamics are. And fathers and sons are going to get right. And, and that's bigger than just father, you know, males and failed, but it's like fathers and their children are going to be right with one another. That's what I want. And, and so that's what he is talking about. But the point is they just keep missing it. They missed it really in Malachi's day. They missed it in Jesus' day. Jesus made that point. He said, you know, one in the spirit of Elias has come. But you, you missed that, and he is the one who points to me. In Matthew 17, 12, 13, but I say unto you that Elias has come already. And fulfilling Malachi chapter 4. But you knew him not. Then the disciples understood that he spoke of them in John the Baptist. And so the point is they're being warned, but they're not taking advantage of that. And uh, finding my place in my notes because I just freelance that. So this ends with the idea of behold, you'll be ready. It is easy for us to look at Malachi 4 and to read this text and to make it and rightly so, about the coming judgment of God, because boy, it's there in graphic description. And it's severity, and that would be fair. Um, it'd be fair to say the really theme, a part of Malachi 4, is the, the new day, the new dawning, what's going to come after the wrath of God, the millennial reign, and the Messiah is going to come, and all that's going to happen there. We can get caught in this kind of a little uh, part about the, the interesting notion about Elijah. Well, Elijah's you know, going to come back. And this role that Elijah plays in history, that he lived in this horrible day, and God translated him to heaven. He was seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it seems he's going to come back on the Day of Atonement. And the spirit of John was upon John the Baptist, or the spirit of Elijah was upon John the Baptist. That's really neat. But I really think that the, that the center part we're supposed to take away, look here with me, verse 4, first word. Remember. That's why I'd say to us, think. That's what implied by the word remember. Remember. These are truths, but think about them. Because the day of the Lord is something to consider. The word remember here in the Hebrew means to be mindful of. It means to call to mind and to consider. But its usage in the Word of God means more than the cognition of a memory it is something that you call to mind to inform present action. Now, that's really important to the text because it fits the context. Remember so that you will be informed by the remembering. Remember you were married? <laughs> oh, yeah. Let that inform your behavior today. Remember the oath you took? Let that inform the way you interact today. Remember the pledge or promise you made to this institution or whatever. Remember that? What's the point of the remembering? Not to recall some memory, but to let what happened in the past be brought to forebear in the future so it, it you know, engages me in the decisions that I'm making today. 
Does that make sense? He's saying, remember. He doesn't say, hey, remember that Moses gave you the covenant. He said, remember what that implies. It implies obedience from you and love from you and honor from you and respect from you. And it's supposed to guide your everyday behavior. Remember those things and let that remembrance, that memory of what has happened, has been given to you, inform your daily decisions. It's important. What you know should inform what you do. Remember, what's the point of the law? And I don't want to get myself in trouble here. Because we, we, we're supposed to have great respect and reverence for the law. But the law is a guide. The law is a lamp. The law is a light. The law gives us boundaries. The law gives us enlightenment. And it's, it's perfect and pure enlightenment. But as humans, you know, I mean, God can say just love. Or he could use the Apostle Paul to write 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where it's fleshed out a whole lot of detail. It wasn't matter how many words you use, the law, you know, you have to have the heart to really get it. Does that make sense? Galatians chapter 3, the law is a schoolmaster to point us to the deficiency of our lives, the obvious of our sin, so that we might see the deficiency of our lives that we can't live up to the law. So we, we cry out to God, help so we can receive His mercy and grace, so we can run to Christ for that help and mercy. That's the point of the law. We can't keep it perfectly. Matter of fact, the law is supposed to be inscribed not just on paper, but on our heart. And why is that important? Because then it's the appropriate filter for me to flesh out in my life. It's a big deal. And, and, and I would refer you to the book of Galatians to read it, because Paul really fleshes this stuff out. The law, the statute, the judgments, these are things that testify of God, show us the deficiency in our need, because all these things distill down to this, love God and love people. That's all the law goes to those two things. Everything hinges on those things. Again, it's a way of saying, remember the relationship. The indictment of the 12 minor prophets was that Israel was failing to remember in this way of letting their relationship, in fact, inform their behavior. And in reality, there was no relationship with God. There were some rules. They, they, they went to church with a Bible in their hand, but this wasn't in their heart. What was their problem? That was a problem. For Israel, the law had become an end in itself. And the law is not an end in itself. The law is a means to, for us to see our need for God and run to the grace of God to see the sinful in us, and to give us a guide for life. And that should really come from our hearts. Again, it was important. And so Galatians 3, I don't have time. There would be a great place to read. This is something that the Jews then, and quite frankly today, still do not understand. And there are some people who still don't understand that. Rules and laws are guideposts to show us to a better way. And... Uh, we don't get that. I say we. There's people who don't get that. You see, um, you know what's important to God? Is intent. Is intent. God will judge the intent, the motives. He'll try the reins. In other words, when God's looking at something that we do, He's looking at why we're doing it. He said, well, that's, that's not fair because my motives are never completely pure. And that's true. That probably our motives are never completely pure. But God can discern there. He knows what we're trying. 
This way people can in their relationships. God is incredibly um, concerned about the intent of the things that we do. Why are we keeping a rule? What's that rule mean to us? Because here's the problem. You know you can keep a rule and violate its intent? Okay, think a little kid, a little child. Okay, you, all, you know what's coming. I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Right? Does that make sense? See, that's not what God wants. Now, is, is there something to applaud in just sitting? Well, yeah, there's something to applaud there. But the reward really comes from the heart. This was something that was a big deal uh, to God and a big deal to Jesus. Um, Israel never got the intent part. They kept lots of rules. They never really understood the intent. They went to church, but they didn't worship. They gave offerings, but not their best. They didn't murder and steal, but neither did they love people. Well, I say they did murder and steal as a whole. In the end, no matter how much a law is explained, you can find a loophole around it in the heart if you want to. But it is the intent that God will judge. That's what the entire book of Malachi is about. You're doing things, but not with the right intent, the right heart, or the right motive. And that's not going to work. A lot of the, the, the mind and heart of God is described in what we call systematic theology. And uh, it's just trying a way to understand what God is saying. And there's, there's a couple words here that are interesting as it, as it guides ethics. There's something called teleology and deontology. And they have a, a role in this. Deontology is, here's a rule. All I'm really concerned about is the rule. And I'm going to keep the rule, no matter the consequences of my keeping of the rule. Okay, that sounds okay, doesn't it? And it is okay. But it's void of serious thinking. Um, teleology says, here's a rule, but my response to that rule is going to be governed by what I think the intent of the rule is. You see the difference? The Jews were really good at saying, here's a rule, I'm just going to keep it. But then in their hearts, you know, they were doing something, but they were missing the point. Um, okay, don't have time. Think Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Sermon on the Mount. There's this phrase that Jesus uses over and over in this Sermon on the Mount, this clarification of what the Christian manifesto, what it means to serve God. And he says this, you have been told. Now, what's, what's that phrase a reference to? The law. You with me? You have been told not to commit adultery. That's, that's, that's one of the examples. You've been told. The law says don't commit adultery. And so these guys were hearing that. And but in their hearts, they were full of lust. They're full of violation. And they found technicalities that still involved indulging themselves without technically, you know, in other words, they had these limits they could go to before it was actually breaking the law. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. 
That's not what I mean at all. So what the law meant at all. The law meant this. Don't just not commit adultery. Don't think about it in your heart. Don't lust for other women. Be, be honorable and true to your wife. See, those are completely different things. You know, um, you can give and not be generous. And if you go through and you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you're going to hear that phrase over. You, it's been said, but I say unto you. What's Jesus doing? He's differentiating between these two kinds of ethics that, you know, that we use these fancy words for, you know, deontology and tele teleology. He, he's saying this, you're, you're just making these, these decisions, but I need you to understand the intent of the law or you'll never get it right. You'll never get it right. You'll never really honor me. And we're never going to do it perfectly, but you have to understand what is God trying to say? Love people and love God. If the rules that you're keeping and observing, they're not getting you to that, then you very well could be in the same boat as these people that 12 minor prophets were trying to get to and they never got it. Because Jesus isn't going to just look and say, well, check off and check off and check off and check off. He said, he's going to look deep into our hearts. The Word of God is a discerner here. He's going to look at our hearts and say, why do you do those things? Why do you go to church? What did you do when you were at church? What did you give? What did you give? How did you give it? What was the spirit of your heart when you gave it? Why did you make that decision? It's, it's not that there's not right and wrong. But there's things. It's why we were told, speak the truth. A right thing. What's the next words? Speak the truth in, because there's a right way to do a right thing. There's a right motive for a right thing. Um, you have to understand God's intent. Thou shalt not kill. Okay? Seems straightforward. Okay? But would everyone here ascribe to pacifism? Would you or would you not protect your family? In other words, I'm not giving you answers. I'm saying it's not quite so simple. But we treat the Word of God that way sometimes. I think God wants a little bit more from us. We are to keep the Word of God in our hearts the same way I am to show love to my wife, to my children, and my family, to get the intent, their highest good, their best. Sometimes I may say it hurt them, but I have to make sure that what I say is not just true, but that, it, that what God's intent is, is I give them something true that helps them, not hurts them. I could belabor this point. There's a lot to say here, but I'm out of time. But know this, God cares deeply, deeply about our intent. It can be a difference maker on the day of the Lord for these people. It doesn't mean we're perfect. We are saved by grace through faith. But what's the quality of our faith? Faith, saving faith, has substance and evidence. And it says we understand the intent of God's law and we're trying desperately to keep it. We're not just whitewashed sepulchers, but we're people whose hearts are full of trying to really love God and then love people. And so God help us to do that. Let me ask you to stand.